This is Emma Scott's Inside the Music Industry podcast. The podcast for independent musicians trying to make it in the music business. Its mission? To encourage and empower musicians to lead a more sustainable music career, help them climb the ladder, and make the music industry a nicer place for everyone. Inside the Music Industry is filled with tips and tricks, insider information, interviews with musicians and music industry professionals. There'll be real-life stories to reveal red flags to watch out for, to help you navigate your way through the music industry as unscathed as possible. So, buckle up and enjoy the ride as we go Inside the Music Industry. And here's your host, Emma Scott. Wow, I am loving that intro and welcome to you to the very first episode of Inside the Music Industry, which I hope you're going to enjoy. I'm very, very pleased that I get to kick everything off with a very special guest who's going to be sharing his experiences of the music industry over the past 20 odd years or so. It's fair to say he has been on one hell of a ride. There's been some tough times. He's learned a lot. He's come through the other side and he's written an excellent book about it as well. So without further ado, let's get him on. Hello, James. How are you doing? <laughs> Good, thank you. So you're James Kennedy. I am aware of you from your wonderful musical career and, of course, your book, which which you can't see, dear listener, but um, for, for us, I am holding this beautiful book, Noise Damage, My Life as a Rock and Roll Underdog, which... Um, some notes there as well, by the look of it. Oh, my God, you know it. How many notes have I got in here? It's Post-it, Post-it Note Central. It was a massive eye-opener opener to me I mean I knew some dodgy things went on but I didn't know to what level of course because I'm not a musician but let's go back to how you got started with the book why did you decide to write the book well there was never really a decision moment it was just one of those things like um, I wrote it I started writing it January 2019 and by March it was done Um, so you know January nothing really happens in January or you know the first few months of the year they're they're quiet times so I think it was a a cut kind of like a um, combination of that and the fact that my band Kaishira had kind of officially disbanded just a month before in mid-December um, and I'd been doing that for like 10 years you know we did three albums and toured Europe been to Canada and all the stuff that I mentioned in the book and uh, we had a lot of struggle so it, you know it was very um, you know it was an intense part of my life for a long time you know so I think when it kind of suddenly came to an end and I didn't have much else going on. It was, you know, it was the start of the year. Uh, I think I was just like kind of reflecting, like, you know, I was getting older and, um, you know, the band that I put so much of my life into and so much sacrifice, you know, it'd been pretty much my sole focus for 10 years was now gone. And I was just, yeah, kind of reflective and thinking, okay, well, that didn't work out. And uh, what does that mean? And, you know, um, what am I going to do now? Can I do anything else? Do I even want to do this? And I think I was kind of... Um, yeah, just going through a little bit of an existential crisis and kind of making sense of everything, my journey and the fact that it was now over. And, um, and yeah, I just started writing, really. I've never had any ambition to write a book. Um, I'm a massive reader, but I've never had any kind of, you know, um, interest in writing or anything like that. Um, so I can't, I honestly can't remember the first day I came in and started writing and sat down and just started going. I, I can't remember it. All I remember is getting halfway through and thinking, actually, there might be a book in this. I should, you know, actually see this through and finish <laughs> it off. <you> know? <laughs> and then it got published. I mean, that was also something that you didn't think was going to happen. 
No, exactly. And, uh, you know, as I said before, you know, it's um, if I knew that it was going to get published and be on the shelves of my local Waterstones, you know, I wouldn't have been as honest in it as I was. And I wouldn't have named everybody by their real name. Like, I like I don't mind some of the crooks that, that I called out in the book being named. Um, but some of the bands that I've slagged off, I, I, I kind of I know that there's some kick ins waiting for me in a few cities around the place now. <laughs> I didn't notice that you slagged that many bands off. Mostly support bands we've toured with. <laughs> you didn't lie. No, exactly. Nobody can say that I've been dishonest in the book. You know, it's um, it's all out there. You know? And to be honest, like like reading back over it now, you know, it's um, I, I would have written a different book now. It was very immediate. Like I said, it all came out in two months, start to finish. Um, it was just a kind of splurge of, of stuff, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm a different person now. I've had a bit of distance from all that stuff. So, I mean, I would have written a very, a much more tame kind of book if I was writing no, now. So we don't is. want tame, James. <laughs> we want so, that's yeah. the filth. We want everything. It not <laughs> be the same. It was, uh, no, it's perfect, just perfect how it is. And I'm so glad that I saw it on my friend Adam's Facebook feed. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this looks absolutely amazing. It's like, I, I think it was fate. Um, so, yeah, no, uh, you could do a new version and take out some of the names or whatever, but yeah, it, would, exactly. it would lose the edge. Be the same. Yeah, exactly, you don't want to yeah. lose the edge. I mean, and before we came on here, you were like, am I allowed to swear? And I'm like, well, considering half your book's the F word, we <laughs> we probably will swear, although we've been quite clean so far, haven't we? Yeah, I can keep I think, it under wraps, you know. I think I've sworn the most so far, and that was before we started the interview. But, you know, well, you have to good. get it off your chest, don't you? That puts me at ease, you know. I haven't got to constantly think about, you know. Mm. Well, back in the olden days when I was on the radio, you couldn't say anything. I felt bad for even saying the word bloody once. <laughs> that, was, that was bad, and I was that, and I can say after twenty five years of doing the radio, I only ever said bloody, so, <laughs> well, and, and hardly anyone that I interviewed ever swore. Do you remember the band The Twang? Yeah, they were a, a bit of a handful, and <laughs> once, I don't know why I'm talking about this. I just thought swearing, and uh, I asked the guy. Uh, I can't remember his name now. The lead singer, nice guy. I said, "So you're about twenty five years now?" And he went, "Am I fuck?" Uh, <laughs> and I was like. And I looked at him and he went, oh, sorry. But uh, so that was the only time anyone swore on my wow. show. Well, that's pretty good running. Yeah, one, one fuck and one, one bloody. So um, I had them <laughs> under control. That's what it is. You've got to keep these. That's, that's going to be a next book, one fuck and one bloody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe I did a cock. I don't know. I, I don't know. Obviously, <laughs> obviously unacceptable behavior. Outrageous. So. We've talked about your the, the book, which is great. Obviously, we'll be referring to it as we go. So, yeah, you had like this 10-year period as a, as an active musician, I would say. But you started, you know, when you were little, you know, when you, when you yeah. first got into music when you were nine. So you got good at the guitar, basically. That was that was your thing. Yeah. And then, yeah, I kind of had a natural talent for it. You know, when I was nine, my dad got me this little acoustic Spanish guitar, which he nicked from somewhere, it turned out, and because um, he didn't know what else to get me for my birthday. Um, so, you know, and I just picked it up really quick and I taught myself and it just became my obsession, really. So, yeah. Did you start playing in bands when you were a teenager and getting into Green Day and bands like that? Yeah, yeah, school so bands. School you know, bands and college. causing riots, as yeah. you went, I suspect. <laughs> then you tried the whole college, uni kind of thing. That didn't go well. You, it was a bit hoity-toity, wasn't it, for you? Yeah, well, I, I was quite technically accomplished. Even though I was self-taught, I was pretty obsessive um, about the guitar. And um, when I went to college, I'd already kind of, 
knew the two-year guitar syllabus when I went there. Uh, I was kind of like, you know, the golden boy of the guitar club, you know. So so the lecturer kind of recommended that I go to the Welsh College of Music and Drama. He was like, well, you know, that that would be at your sort of level. But he kind of misjudged it because, you know, I, I wasn't really into that stuff. I was, I, I, you know, I wanted to rock and roll, you know what I mean? So I went to this kind of classical conservatoire that was, yeah, hoity-toity and, uh, you know, full of prim and proper kids with violins and, you know, grade eights under their belt. And I had nothing, you know, I just had my kind of, my, my black beaten up shrap, you know, and, um, you know, a bunch of self-taught knowledge that I had. So I didn't fit in there at all. It was kind of a waste of two years of my time, to be honest. And, and it did sort of set me back uh, in terms of time and in terms of my uh, confidence because it made me question, you know, Mm. Can I, am I any good? Can I do this? Am I just some scruff from Newport that uh, doesn't really belong here, you know? But you, you got out of there and then you got that job at the, the studios. Yeah. That you, and, and that kind of set you up with the, the whole recording side. You self-taught that as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I kind of knew um, a little bit because I got a transfer because I was trying to figure out how to get around the whole university thing. So I got a transfer from the Welsh College to um, uh, Neath College, which had a popular music course and they had a, a transfer program. So I tried that and I wasn't happy there either because um, that was a bit more the other way. It was a bit too basic. And by that point, I'd already learned a fair bit about home recording and stuff, just just again for my own pleasure and just messing about. And the lecturer there saw that I could do it and he knew that I wanted to leave. So he kind of offered me a job at his private studio, which was amazing. So I was 20 years of age. I managed to flunk out of um, uni and, and get a job in an actual studio, you know. But I, mean, I wasn't like an experienced uh, engineer or anything. I, I kind of knew my way around. So that mm. was a real kind of trial by fire straight in at the deep end. You know, yeah. I got good basically on the job doing it, you know. That's how most of us learn, you know. Well, I did anyway. I learned on the yeah. job and, you know, this, yeah. it's not a bad thing at all. Um, you were obviously very skilled at what you were doing. And, and then you decided... You had nothing better to do than make make your own album. But yeah. you were going to do it in secret. Nobody was to know about this. And you were going to play all of the instruments. You were going to write everything, even though you hadn't written songs and you didn't know how to sing. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right, James. The, you know, you do tend to do things that are quite interesting. I was quite taken with that. I've never really considered an obstacle. Like, for me, like, if I decide I'm doing something then no is not an option. I just figure out how to get around it. So if I if I don't know how to produce a record, you know, if I can't make a record because I can't afford to or something like that, or I don't know someone that could do it, then I don't consider that to be an obstacle. I just figure out, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm making the record. Um, <laughs> the fact that I can't afford to or don't know how to, that's, that's just a detail, you know. So I figure out, okay, well, how am I going to do this thing? And I just do it. I've always been quite stubborn like that. And, and um, so I started making the record and then it was like, okay, I... I, I I haven't got a singer. I can't sing. Um, so how am I going to get vocals on this thing? So again, I just thought, all right, I'm bored of thinking about it now. I'm bored of trying to find someone that will actually turn up and do it and not mess me around. So I'll just fucking have a go myself. So I just <laughs> went down there in the dead of night when no one could hear me. And I just did the thing, you know. And, um, you know, my voice has changed over the years. You know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm very experienced at singing now. But uh, I only started as a singer really out of, you know, <laughs> There's no one else around. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know. So that's kind of yeah. That that's always kind of been. I think one of my assets. I think is my sheer 
belligerent stubbornness that I just like, if I'm doing something, I decide I'm doing it, then, you know, if nobody else will do it or if I can't afford it, I'll just figure out some way to do it myself, you know, with cardboard and, and gaffer tape or whatever, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll figure out a way, you know. I love it. Um, so you came up with your album, which at, at that point you just said you were called Kennedy, uh, which yeah. obviously is your surname. Um, and that was made in China from 2002. And of course, um, if, if anybody looks at your Spotify now for Kaishira, they'll see that Made in China was actually run, redone like 10 years later. Yeah. I was trying to get this right. And then you had Paradigm and Circle as well. So this is the first of your three albums, except this was like the demo version of Yes, that, I guess. Yeah. So the year's 2002. You're what? You're 20 still? 21? Maybe. Did that take you two years to do the whole? Yeah, making because um, a bit like I was saying about the book, really, like when I went into the studio, I, I had no ambition to write an album or to be a songwriter or a singer. I very much wanted to be a kick ass lead guitar player in an awesome band. You know, that was my only ambition. I just wanted to be the best guitar player. Um, so, you know, like the, the 18 year old me could played guitar way better than I can now because now I'm, I do lots of other things, you know, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, but back then all I wanted to be was I think the next Steve Vai, you know? Mm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wrote the album and produced it all because I couldn't find a band. Basically I couldn't find that band that wanted, you know, a kick-ass lead guitar player. Um, I couldn't find a band that had the ambition or the drive to actually want to do stuff, you know? Mm. So, um, I ended up just kind of, yeah, doing everything myself and making an album. But, um, it was very much a demo because I'd never sung before, I'd never written before. And, you know, when you've got the keys to a recording studio and you're doing it completely by yourself, you know, the ambition doesn't have any boundaries at all. So that the album had everything on it, 10 minute long songs. There was electronics, there was music concrete, there was vocal samples, there was a thousand different time changes and different genre changes. You know, it was completely... It's craziness. Craziness, yeah. <laughs> I love it. So it took, that took a couple of years, but then you you actually got somewhere with that demo, and and that you know, and and let's just uh, talk about the Radio One part. They Radio One said you were the warped genius, yeah. and those three words got used on many press releases and yeah. um, social media and everything. So how did you get? Because I'm obviously intrigued as to how people get on Radio One. That's that's my kind of background as well. Um, how did you get your demo? over to Radio 1. Did you have any experience in this before or did you just send off a few jiffy bags with CDs in? What Probably that, yeah. Again, just like the book, Beginner's Luck, I think. You know what I mean? Like, like um, I sent it out initially to a pile of like local press and magazines and stuff like that just to kind of get some closure on it because I spent ages polishing it because like, cause like I said, I didn't have anybody supervising me or anything. I, you know, I was just at the keys to the madhouse and I, you know, I was kept polishing and polishing and polishing. And in the end, I thought, like, I need to get this out somehow so that I, it's out there. I, I, it's a finished product. I could no longer mess with it. So I sent it out to some local press and magazines. And the response was amazing. I was getting double-page spreads and everything like that. Like, my God, this is the new local guy. Who is this guy? And so I thought, oh, that, wow. that's pretty cool. I'll, I'll send it out to some radio stations then. And uh, from what I remember... Yeah, I think I probably sent one to Hugh Stevens, who was um, you know, the, the big Welsh Radio 1 guy at that time. And I remember getting an email from his secretary saying, Hugh loves your record. He's going to be playing you um, on Wednesday or whatever like that. So that was the kind of first one. And I think uh, uh, Hugh became quite a fan and he actually booked us some shows and came to see us and was trying to hook us up with his label he was working with at the time. So he became quite a champion of me through that first release. And then I ended up topping the uh, BBC Radio 1 uh, unsigned chart. They had, I don't think they do it anymore. It's no, I don't think they do now. The artist chart or something like that. 
And I was at the top of that for like six weeks or something. And that's where the quote, the Warp Genius came from. They kind of, that was their little write-up that they gave me on the site. Um, and yes. I wish I had a screen grab of it. I mean, these, these were early days for like the internet. This is pre-MySpace. You know? So uh, yeah. the, the me now, every time I get something like that, I take a screenshot of it and put it on, <laughs> put it in a folder, you know. But I'm I didn't obsessed do with that it. for that. So uh, the, I don't think there's any record of this anywhere on the internet, but it did It did honestly happen. <laughs> it did happen. You are the Warped Genius. This is oh, good. You, <laughs> I was intrigued about it because, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me now, the Hugh Stevens connection, you know, the fact that he's Welsh, you're Welsh. And he was on Radio 1. Of course, he's not on Radio 1 anymore. So it's it's definitely harder. It's definitely harder these days to, to yeah, well, be able I, to do I that. Yeah, I have no luck with radio ever since then. That's why I keep calling the beginners <laughs> You know, like I said, I just I was getting great press. Um, I was getting played on, you know, mainstream radio. I had Sony and Warner Brothers on the phone several times, wanted more material, wanted to know where they could see me play. So straight out of the gates, you know, this was looking like a Hollywood's, you know, rags yeah. to riches success story. You know what I mean? You're sitting so, there rubbing uh, your hands like, yes, yeah, come on. Like, this was difficult. I thought this was supposed to be hard. Yeah. You know, I made a record by myself. I, you know, I sent some jiffy bags out and, you know, here we go. We're on a roll. So I think it was definitely beginner's luck because after that, it was a sheer <laughs> drop down into uh, you know a never-ending yeah. kind of uh, tunnel of shit. <laughs> there was a lot of shit going on, to be fair. Um, and and interesting that you say beginner's luck. I think there's there is so much about luck. You know, good luck, bad luck, beginner's luck, and you, you just don't know. You know, you could be the best band in the world ever, but if the luck it ain't coming your way. It ain't coming your way. And and it's just really difficult to explain. You know, a lot of people say to me, Emma, how am I gonna how am I gonna break through? And I'm like, well, luck, timing, Completely. who you know. You Completely. just you just don't know, do you? That's the thing. There's no, no real rhyme or reason, and there's no rhyme or reason why you got shafted so royally. There, yeah, I mean my, my thoughts on that are like, you know, like take a take a standard like major label. Um, signing situation like in, in a given month what people don't realize is, is everybody looks at the success stories they look at the Coldplay's or the Muse or the Ed Sheeran and they think that that's what happens when you get a major deal but they don't know about the 49 other acts that also got signed that same month because that's the model because nobody knows what's going to stick and what, what's not going to you and it doesn't mean that you're not talented or hardworking or worthy but these things are very random no one really knows why Ed Sheeran took off like he did you know sure he's got great songs and stuff like that but lots of people got great songs so yeah. you know a label will sign up say 50 acts in a month and they'll pump money into all of them and they'll all have access to the same team and the same um, promotion and all that sort of stuff and for one of them for whatever reason that nobody knows will just stick and then the label then puts all their money on that one horse and that one horse then pays for all the the losses made by the ones that didn't stick. And you yeah. never hear about those guys ever again. You know, they just get stuck on the shelf and they can't go elsewhere. And Sony no longer take their calls. And and that's the, the that's the other side of the major label situation. Yeah. So it is so much like Eve, you've got to be lucky enough to get seen by a big label uh, and get signed by one. That in itself is like 1% level luck. But then that even then, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get anywhere with it. You know, this, this is real... You know, I don't think people realize just how much of this mm. has got nothing to do with your talent or your work ethic. You know, yeah. it has got so much of it has got to do with just random chance. And no one knows why, a, you know, Coldplay becomes who they are. No one knows. It's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, uh, I've done quite a lot of radio and Coldplay came through as a new band. And yeah, I played them and quite a few other people played them. And that they did obviously have success. But then other bands I would have been sent at the same time that I'd given a few spot plays to, you know, or here and there, I'll just play them. 
if other people didn't join in, it was just me playing it. So I, oh, then, then you find they get dropped. And there were so many yeah. bands coming up in the in the nineties, two thousands as well. I left Kerrang in two thousand and nine. There were so many new bands coming in. You know, the pluggers would come down. Oh yeah, Emma, this is a, you know, check out this band. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I will check. There, you know, there's about a hundred new bands I've got to check out this week. But okay, yeah. I'll do it. And the chances of them being picked by other radio stations as well. You know, you need a lot of radio play. Yeah. And, and, and that's just radio as well, you know. That's just radio. And then you've got to look at press, you've got to look at gigs, you've got to look at all sorts of different opportunities. So and, many um, variables to it, man. It's so and, and hard. That's why, that's why I'm, I'm a big proponent of the modern model because I know I'm sort of taking us off script a little here, but, um, you know, it's uh, back in the days when labels ran supreme and there wasn't social media and you couldn't make a record in your bedroom. You know, if you couldn't get a deal, that was it. It was over. There wasn't. Oh, I'll go and make exactly. a record myself and put it out. You couldn't do that. There was you just you couldn't afford it. And even if you could afford to spend, you know, twenty five grand going to a studio with an engineer and a big mixing desk and all the big chunky outboard gear that we had back then, even if you could afford to do it, what would you have? You'd have a, you know you'd have a master tape in your hand and that's it. Mm. You know you wouldn't get it out anywhere. So that's why it's so much better these days. Like artists don't need to just be waiting for that deal, which they, which in, in most likelihood they're never going to get anyway. You know, they, yeah. they, they've got other options now, and, and I'm all for that. Yeah, I'm all for the uh, the new model as well. I think it's absolutely amazing. I mean, even though the new model wasn't around when you were doing the first version of uh, Made in China, you were kind of like ahead of the game. You were doing the new model. Yeah. In the old model time, um, yeah. and maybe if you had been doing the new model in the new model time, it would be completely. Anyway, it's timing, yeah. and we will continue James's story in the next episode of Inside the Music Industry, coming soon. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Inside the Music Industry. Please share to reach as many musicians as we possibly can. There'll be another episode very soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>